morning. You ready? Thank you. That's not what I was asking if you're ready for. We sang already, and I w- you didn't see me, but I'm always red when that happens. So, But thank you. Um, thank you. For, thank you. I appreciate it. It is good to know and to be loved. But are you ready for Exodus 21 to 24? That's good, because most people aren't. <laughs> I mentioned this, I think, last Sunday. You start, you pick up the Bible, and you read it like you read any other book, which means you turn to page one, and you start to read. And you are treated, from page one to page, in my Bible, 65, to 70 chapters of mostly story. There's some genealogies you might skip along the way, the table of nations, uh, there's a couple poems, there's things like this. But for the most part, you get 70 chapters of story. And then you hit Exodus chapter 21. And you begin, I forget exactly how many it was. I did this last week and talked about how many chapters they spend at Mount Sinai. It's like 59 chapters of law. And, um, and it turns a lot of people away. Or you skip it and you just start flipping through and wondering where the rest of the story is. Um, they're, they're not easy chapters of Scripture. They don't feel like they're particularly applicable, right? You're, you like the stories because they're fun and they're interesting and they tell you about God and there's miracles and they're neat and they're strange, right? And, and the poems and the songs are interesting. They praise the Lord. You turn to later on in the Bible and you might turn to the wisdom literature and that's like, oh, this is good advice. You turn to the Psalms and I can pray this. Or you turn to the New Testament. There's lots of things to learn there. But you get to these laws and... They're not very applicable. Some of them are really odd, like don't wear mixed fiber clothing. Why? What does that matter? Some of them we love. Some of them you read them and you're like, wow, that's cool. Don't glean to the edges of your, or don't, don't harvest to the edges of your field, but leave some for the widow and the orphan and the foreigner among you so that they can go out and find food if they need it. It's like, that's actually a really cool idea. That's an ideal that we don't even live up to today. And then you read other laws and you're kind of like, okay, but that's barbaric. Kill the sorcerer. Um, is that really a death penalty offense? <laughs> Those who dishonor their mother and father must be stoned. Okay, Lord. <laughs> going to move on because I don't know what to do with that. And for some people, it causes the kind of problems where it's like, you know what, I'm out. I don't know about this God who's behind these laws, but if this is what he's about, then I'm not. Um, We've clearly moved past this is the kind of feeling that you start to get. And what you do with having moved past it depends on your faith stance, right? Maybe we've moved past it and I just don't have to worry about this. This was for Israel and I can turn to Jesus. Maybe like we've actually learned something and this whole book needs to be thrown out. And it does cause those kind of problems for people. And so we get to look at this today. And not just today, because we are walking through the entire book of Exodus together. So we're going to be looking at this at various points through the next couple weeks. And so let's start by standing together and reading the first 11 verses that you come to when you hit Exodus chapter 21. And we stand together in honor of the word of the Lord and as a way of participating this morning in worship, even as we do the sermon. So Exodus 21, verses 1 to 11, it's on the screen, but you're always welcome to pull out your Bible or your phone or whatever you like to have in front of you. These are the laws that you are to set before them. So this is God giving Moses the law, 
They're up on Mount Sinai. He says, these are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. (laughs) You're not able to hear me. Um, If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door of the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl, and then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. It starts right off in an uncomfortable place, doesn't it? (laughs) It's not like you get to ease into it with some of the laws that we like or some of the things that, that, that we get to make sense of. It's apparent from the moment you start reading Exodus chapter 21 that you are reading something from a different time and a different place and a different culture and you start to ask questions because we don't do these things anymore. I do not plan on selling any of my daughters. (laughs) It's not something I'm going to do, right? Yes, amen. I hope that you can all heartily agree with that statement. Um, (laughs) So so on occasion, yeah. (laughs) So what do we do? What do we do with this? Um, I can't walk through every verse of Exodus 21 to 24 this morning. Um, And sometimes that's what you want to do. You want to look at each verse individually and you want to say, okay, what is going on here specifically? And if that's something you really want to do, I'm happy to do that with you because I've done a ton of reading preparing these sermons and I've learned a lot that I don't get to talk about this morning. So if you want to hear more, you can do that. Um, But there are a number of helpful, more general things that we can talk through this morning that enable us to read and learn from and grow through even the strange sections of Scripture that we call the law. And so that's what I want to do this morning, and we're going to get to Jesus as we do that, and you'll see how that works, even if you're surprised that I can say that. So anytime you're reading Scripture, it's a matter of understanding genre, context, and content, right? That's, and that's not just Scripture. That's anytime we read anything. You pick something up, you need to know what kind of thing you're reading. You don't read a fiction novel like you read the newspaper. If you do, you're going to run into trouble, right? Because they're totally different genres. One is trying to tell you about the goings-on in whatever, again, the context, right? So if it's a national newspaper, it's the goings-on in Canada. If it's a Prince George newspaper, it's the goings-on in this city. And a fiction is a story that isn't real, 
right? They're totally different, and so you read them in a completely different manner. And we know this intuitively for most types of literature. We pick up the Bible, you read the Psalms, you know their poetry. You may or, not, may, or not, may or may not be an expert on Hebrew poetry, but you know, generally speaking, how to read poetry. You read the poem about God having wings, and you understand that this is not trying to give you an image of what God actually looks like, because that's not how poems work. It's a metaphor, right? We know this. You pick up one of the Gospels, or you pick up some of the earlier chapters in Exodus and Genesis, you know you're reading a narrative. It's a story, and you know how to read narratives, and you know what the rules are of that genre. For the most part, lots of Scripture is familiar in that way. But there are a number of places in Scripture where we either are not familiar with the genre at all because we don't have that genre anymore. So an example of this is apocalyptic literature. Nobody's really writing apocalyptic literature anymore, and so we don't actually usually know the rules for reading that type of writing. Um, but at least we know we don't know, and so we try to learn. Where we get into big trouble is where we run into a place in the scriptures, like the law, where we have writings that we call the law. And if you were to pick one up, you would know, generally speaking, how to read a modern law. And so you turn to this and you, you read in the NIV, these are the laws that are set before you, and you're like, okay, I know how to read this, but we don't. Because the law as a genre in the Bible, in the ancient Near East and Hebrew scriptures, is not the same as the law as a genre today. They're not the same kind of writing. We live in a very different world, even on that level. So we live in a context of what we call judicial law. And judicial law is based around the availability and uniformity of a law code across a certain region. So what I mean by that is a judge in Prince George has to make a decision on a case and they pick up the same law book with exactly the same text as a judge in Ottawa. If it's a national, right? If it's BC law, then it's going to be all across BC. We have printing presses. We have the internet. You can have a consistent, easily available, uniform law across all of the province or all of the nation. This was not the case in the ancient world. There's no printing presses. There's no internet. There is no big book of laws that every judge across the nation has access to that's all exactly the same. And so they didn't operate on a judicial law system. They operated on a common law system. It's the easiest analogy, though they wouldn't have called it that. They just called it the law. And what that is, is that you get books of the law which are incomplete, they have to be. You can't write everything down. And we know they're incomplete even in Scripture because of the way they organize and design them. So, do you know how many laws there are in the Torah? If you looked at the title of the sermon today, you know the answer. What's the number in brackets? Did anybody catch that? 611. 611 indispensable laws for life. Why are there 611 laws in the Torah? Because if you take the letters for the name Torah, and in Hebrew there are no numbers, okay? So I know this is weird. You're getting a lot of interesting information. We have A, B, C, D, and 1, 2, 3. In Hebrew, they don't have two separate sets. The letters are numbers. They're both. And you have to look at it to know what's going on. So if you take the letters for Torah and you add them up, do you know what number you get? 611. It's not an accident. It's, it's how they designed things. You look at the section we're entering now, chapters 21 to 24. The first word in this section adds up to the number 42. 
You know how many laws there are in this section? You guys are, you guys are amazing. <laughs> There's 42, and it's not an accident. And this is a design pattern throughout Scripture. You turn to Proverbs, and you read the first section of the Proverbs. It says these are the Proverbs of Solomon. Um, Solomon's name adds up to the number 375. You want to know how many Proverbs there are in the first the collection of the Proverbs of Solomon? 375. We know from the, the book of Kings and Chronicles that Solomon penned thousands of Proverbs, but they pulled a collection together and they put in the number of his name. So it's not complete. It's selected to be representative, right? That's how ancient Near Eastern law codes work. And there are a number of places, even in Exodus, where God tells Moses a statute, but we don't know what the statute is because they didn't write it down, right? Like they're just, that's not the point, they're not writing the same kind of book that we would be writing if we wrote a law book. If we write a law book, it has to be complete because it's going to be reproduced and used as a guideline in this exact form again and again and again across time and space, right, until it's edited or adjusted. That's not what's going on here. Ancient Near Eastern law codes are given to teach wisdom and values so that a judge can apply the underlying values and wisdom to unique situations again and again and again over the course of his lifetime. Incidentally, that's also why the requirements of a judge in the ancient world and today are so radically different. Today, a judge must be an expert in the law. They must know the law and how to apply it. You read in Exodus the requirements of a judge, and he must be a man of wisdom who will be impartial and take no bribes. Why? Because you need to be somebody who is trained in the wisdom of the law, who will judge irrespective of the place of the people in front of you, and will not allow any kind of foreign influence like a, a bribe to alter your judgment. Because it's up to you as the judge to determine what's going on and how to wisely decide on this issue. It's not up to you to find the written code that tells you exactly what to do, and now you can say, look, here we go. This is what you have to do, independent of me, right? The judge is deeply involved in an ancient Near Eastern setting in a way that judges today are not, though, of course, today judges still are, and we could talk about the system today, but that's not where we're going, so we're not going to go there. Um, what else is going on in ancient Near Eastern law codes? Because they are a selection designed to teach in order that judges may act wisely, they are also always monuments. Now, you may not immediately see the connection there, but a law code, when you write it out, is supposed to be something that displays for all to see the wisdom of the lawgiver. In this case, the wisdom of the Lord God. It's supposed to be a point of remembrance. It's supposed to be a point of glory and of honor and of display. And there's lots of other ancient Near Eastern law codes that this is the case also. The most famous one is the Code of Hammurabi. You don't need to remember that. But it's this one that's recorded. It's very, very early, and it's never followed. But that's not because it's ignored. It's because it, too, is supposed to be teaching a principle, and then you make a unique decision for the unique setting. When we say it's never followed, we mean they never follow exactly like it said this exactly, and we did this exactly, because that's not how it works. So that starts to get us into the context, because now we're talking about remembering the wisdom of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of all of creation, God today. 
what's going on that we are supposed to remember and that we are supposed to understand around the purpose of the law. Before the law is even given, and technically the law begins to be given in chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments, before the law is even given, God has come to His people, He has rescued His people, He has given His people a calling and a mission, and He is beginning to dwell with His people. All of that happens before the law is given or can be obeyed. So you know from the very beginning that obedience to the law is not a matter of salvation. It's not about do this so that you'll be good enough for the love of God. Do this so that you can be accepted by the Lord your God. Do this so the Lord your God can help you. None of that is true. It's why at so many points in the law, God steps back to say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember this. This is who I am. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, and I gave you this covenant, and I called you to be my treasured possession. You remember these three things from last week? My treasured possession, my holy priesthood, and my royal kingdom. Or my, uh, sorry, my royal priesthood and my holy nation. (laughs) My priestly kingdom and my holy nation, that idea. And what's built in there is how much God loves us and that he's called us into a mission. And this, too, is part of the context of the law. The context of the law is the love and grace of God and the mission of of God. That's what the law is about. The law is about teaching Israel to live in the love of God and to live on the mission of God. It's designed for their own good so that they may flourish But even that flourishing is designed to be for the mission of God because God doesn't just love Israel. God also loves all of the nations around them. And Israel's job is to be a light. It's to be a city on a hill. It's to be a picture that is so desirable that the nations all around them look at Israel and say, okay, they have got some things right that we want And there's some obvious ways that this is true, like giving people a day of rest in a world that didn't take a day of rest. Sabbath becomes an incredible gift, right? But it's built into the law. Now, why does this matter in terms of the context? It changes how we read these things. So we can ask how the love of God is displayed in these things, and we can ask how following these within the context of the ancient world, okay, and we're going to talk about that too, would have displayed the love of God to all the nations, right? And context goes broader than just the context in Exodus. One of the things we really struggle with as we read these laws is that they are from a very different culture. And God doesn't step in and say, here you are, wait, not even here, there you are, way over there in backstage, and I want you to be across the highway. (laughs) So, boom, here's all the laws for over there. It would have been impossible For Israel as a nation, living in their time, surrounded by the peoples they were, having been grown up, so to speak, in Egypt and seen that way of the world, to jump from there to there, right? None of us could do that. Like, get from there to there in one step. You can't. It's a journey. You take one step at a time. And the laws are designed to walk Israel on that journey. And we see that from within the Old Testament and on into the New Testament, that over time, some of the laws progress, because God has wanted to walk them in that direction. So we just read about slavery, about selling your daughter, 
about buying a Hebrew servant, says the NIV, but it's the word for slave. It's just softened. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. We read that and we, it's something like bile rises up. It's like slavery, really? That's what the laws are about? Um, Well, this is the world they live in and God isn't taking them from there to there in one step. The journey is clear though. And from the very beginning, God puts very strong limits around this. So within a culture of slavery, think about how radical it is to say, if you buy a slave, he serves you for six years, and in the seventh years, he goes free without paying anything, right? Or about the woman, um, if you give this woman that you have bought as a slave, if you give her to your son, you must grant her the rights of a daughter, right? Again, this incredible step forward. No, it's not the end of the journey. No, it's not where we want to be. No, it's not where we're supposed to stop. But in context, it's amazing, right? And you can begin to see how that would have shown and displayed the love of God and been attractive and appealing to the nations around it in order to fulfill the mission of God. Now, this also helps us as we begin to think about not living up to the law. And this is where we start to, it becomes very applicable for us today. Because most of us, when we fail to live up to the expectations of Scripture and of God on our lives, and I'm not talking about the ones laid out in Exodus 21, but there's kind of the general biblical principles. When we, when we sin, when we mess up, when we hurt someone around us, we immediately jump to the issue of acceptance. I've messed up, and now I'm going to be rejected. I'm not good enough. I'm a failure, and I'm not worthy of this community, this love, this relationship, fill in the blank. That's where we go. That's, it's, 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 it's just our, our nature and our instinct. And that path is cut off from the very beginning here. Because before they've had any chance to obey the law or even know the law, they're already loved and accepted and rescued. It's not what it's about. Now, does it matter that you obey, that you, live, that you do your best to live up to these things? Yes, it does, but not because if you don't, God won't love you, right? And, and think that through to the end. What are your options if that's really the case? I failed and now I'm going to be rejected. What, what can I do about that? Well, I can beg for another chance and I can make sure that I do much better next time. That's it. That's all you can do. If you get a chance, you better shape up, right? And it's this treadmill that leads nowhere. Because even if you get another chance and you try to shape up, what's inevitable? You're going to mess up again, right? Like there's no if here. It's not if I fail, if I sin, if I hurt somebody. I'm going to. That's going to happen. And if my love and acceptance and being a part of something requires that I do a really good job, I might as well just step out now. And so many of us live in that place where we're just trying again and again through this loop of, I'm going to do good enough that people are going to love me. And the worst thing is when you succeed, because you do good enough and people love you and they want you to do better. And if it wasn't enough that you were going to fail inevitably on your own anyway, actually succeeding just ratchets it up a notch, right? Like now I have to do better again and I have to do better again. I have to keep proving my worth and I have to keep proving that I can be loved and accepted. And there's no way to win, right? There's no way. Exodus, God, through the whole of scriptures, reverses the loop. He says, look, 
first you're loved, first you're accepted, first you have a place, and nothing you do can change that. But within that, you have a calling and an opportunity to be part of something amazing. So try. And what do you do if you fail there? You pick up and try again because you're still on the same mission. Why does it bother God when, when we don't live up to his calling and to his standard? It's not because he looks at us and he says, oh my goodness, you're awful. He loves us. He rescued us before we did anything. And if the law is given to give us a place of life and flourishing, then when we don't live up to it, what we are hurting is the thing God loves, ourselves. And he's not looking at you, waiting to beat you down for how awful you did. He's looking at you, wanting to pick you up and help you to keep going. Because what he wants for you is good things and life. What's the other thing you hurt when you don't live up to the calling of God? You hurt his mission, which is his, his love of everybody else around you, right? And so how can you respond to that? Well, you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be a perfect example of the love of God and the life that God has called us to. That's not possible. But by the grace of God, he's given us a way to display his goodness even in our failure. It's by being, accepting the grace and forgiveness of God. By being honest about our sin and our failure and how we've messed up and allowing him to cover that over with forgiveness and love. And in that moment, we continue to be a sign of his goodness and his grace and his way and how much better it is. And so in terms of the mission of God, we're going to sin, but sin only gets in the way if we let it. It doesn't have to. God has worked from the very beginning, from the moment Adam and Eve took from the fruit of the tree of the garden that they weren't allowed to eat to the moment of Jesus Christ on the cross. God has stepped in to cover over, right? And so Adam and Eve have to be removed from the garden but on their way out, God provides them with clothing, right? He's always longed and wanted to do this so that we can continue to walk in his way and continue to be his people and continue to be his witness in the world, right? And that's where we start to learn from the context of the law and how it applies to us. I know we went a long ways from talking about Exodus 21 there, but that's okay. So come back to Exodus 21. We've got genre, and that changes how we read it. We've got context, and there's a number of contexts here. Context in Exodus, remembering where this comes from and what it's for, right? But also context within the cultures of that world and recognizing that this is not meant to be, it's not given as the final form, right? And so we have moved forward since Exodus chapter 21. Rightly so. And you see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. It's not something that we're just saying like, hey, we did awesome. Um, It's built in. So then that brings us to content. You're reading through Exodus 21 and onwards, chapter after chapter of law. Um, What do you do with all this strange stuff in here? Some of it you need to look up and learn about the context of the ancient world and figure out what's going on in that culture and how this is different and how it witnesses. But that's not always an option. So what's helpful? What's helpful is I've found, and this is something that there's a website called The Bible Project, and they talked about this, and if you've never looked up The Bible Project, look it up, it's really cool, um, is that the Hebrew laws in the Old Testament fall into five categories. And where we had difficulty with this is that we only share two of them in common. So the five categories are civil law, criminal law, those are the two that we share in common, 
the ritual calendar, ritual sacrifices, and ritual holiness laws. And those are the three that we don't, we don't have anything comparable anymore. Um, civil law and criminal law should be obvious. They're the laws that, that govern our relationships and our community and what's out of bounds and what's considered a crime and so on and so forth. Um, the ritual calendar is about the festivals of ancient Israel. It's about the weekly schedule, so the Sabbath, the day of rest, which is given as a law in the ancient, in, in the ancient scriptures here in the Bible, um, where, and it's still a good thing to do today, but it's not given to us as a law in the same way. But that cycle of rhythm, or cycle of rest and work, right? Six days you work, one day you rest. Over the course of the year, the seventh month is full of festivals and parties, and the ones that aren't on the seventh month, like Passover are seven days long. It's this repetition of the number seven. And the idea behind it is that even in the rhythms of our life, we represent and walk in the ways of God. That He is the one who gives us the rhythm of our days and the rhythm of creation. And right down to that level, we are His people, His treasured possession. And so we enjoy these things. They're good for us, a day of rest and festivals throughout the year. But we also speak His word to the world through them, through the very calendar we live by, which is something we maybe need to reflect on today. Does our calendar and our schedule reflect the goodness and the ways of God? I'm not saying you need to go back and follow this one, right? Um, but in terms of the principles and values that you learn in, in, in God and in His life and in His way, is that reflected in the way that we go through our days? You come to the next two ritual sacrifices and ritual purity laws, and these are about the ability of people to enter into the presence of God. God is the source of all life. And no death can be in his presence without being destroyed. And so if you come into the full presence of God, you die. Because we are mixed creatures, full of life and death, good and evil, darkness and light. Right? And we cannot stand in his presence. But God longs to be in our presence. And he wants to dwell among his people. And so he starts to give them ways to do this through the ritual sacrifices and the ritual purity laws. And a couple of the principles that come out here in the ritual sacrificial laws is the principle of substitution. Um, that something must take our place in order for us to be made holy. Um, in the ritual purity laws, it's about being unmixed. This is one of those things where uh, that's a lot of the weird laws fit into this food laws and clothing laws and stuff like this. But you think about the word pure, you pure water, it is unmixed. It's just water, right? And the, the, the goal in these laws, symbolically as well as literally, is to create a people who are purely for and of God. Um, in the same way as the civil and criminal laws, though, are meant to walk in a progression... The ritual laws, all three categories, are meant to as well. And this becomes clearest in the teachings of Jesus. So the Sermon on the Mount is a great place for this. In the Sermon on the Mount near the beginning, he says, he actually starts with all the same things that the Exodus does, about how we're accepted and we're loved and we're called. So you read in 
Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, you are the city on the hill. It's all familiar language from the Old Testament. Then he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is a very strange thing to say about laws. How do you fulfill laws? Right? If you're thinking about laws in a modern sense, there's no way that you can fulfill the law. You know, like don't jaywalk. I have fulfilled that law. Okay, does that mean you obeyed it? Or are you just being weird? Um, but if the law is a monument displaying the goodness and love and wisdom of God that is given to the people of God to walk them on that journey into being the people of God, into knowing what it means to be his people, and into the mission of God, displaying his glory and goodness for all the world, those are things you can fulfill. You can fulfill a mission. You can fully reveal what has not yet fully been revealed, right? And that's a fulfillment. And so you look at each of those different categories. You think about the civil and criminal laws, and there's a number of key principles that are, that are laid out here. In Exodus, there's the principle of moral symmetry, that the punishment should fit the crime. It's the principle that life is sacred and a thing to be treasured. It's the principle that no judgment should be modified by social position, power, wealth, gender, right? All that stuff is built in here. So it's actually pretty amazing, the, the values that are behind here. Society should operate on the principle of compensation, um, that those who are victims should be compensated for their loss, and that the compensation should not vary with those same things, position, power, wealth, gender, etc. Um, Hebrew law, unlike all of the laws around it, did not favor the rich, the rulers, or the men, um, which, which, yeah, is incredible. And then you turn to Jesus, and what's he doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you've heard it was said, do not murder, but I say... Anyone who rages at his brother is already guilty of sin, right? He's taking it up another step. You see the progression. But the principles are all the same. You still see those same principles of the value of life, of justice independent of position, of the right place for compensation. But instead of having equal compensation where you do something to me and I do something back, Jesus says, you've heard it was said eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Right? What do you give back? You should give back, but not according to what they've done to you, according to the love God has for them. So the civil and the criminal laws, that journey that Israel has started walking is fulfilled in Jesus. The full revelation of the goodness and grace and love of God is in the person of Jesus. And then you turn to the ritual laws. And Jesus takes the calendar of Israel and remakes it around himself. Passover becomes the Lord's Supper, right? We still follow that calendar in terms of we celebrate Easter. We celebrate the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the coming of God among us. Right? It's the same things that Israel celebrated, but they've been remade and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. One of those great analogies is that the Jewish day begins at sunset because they lived in the time of expectation. But the Christian day begins at sunrise because we live in the time of fulfillment. 
You move on to the other ritual laws, the ritual sacrificial laws. And Jesus doesn't step outside of those laws. He finishes them. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice so that we don't have to keep making regular sacrifices of goats and oxen and turtle doves and so on and so forth because Jesus finished it. He was the greatest sacrifice after which there is no need of any other. Same thing with the ritual purity laws. Jesus declares all food clean. Why is that? Because if we are in Jesus, we have already been made pure and holy. And you don't need to go through all of those other steps anymore. And then you go back to what the purpose of those laws was. Why was there a ritual purity and ritual sacrificial set of laws? Because God longed to be with his people. And you look at the person of Jesus Christ, who is God come among us, And the promise is that if we are in him, the Holy Spirit, God himself, will dwell in us. The law has been fulfilled. It's pretty cool when you start to think about how all of this lines up and how you can move from Exodus 21 and 22 and 23 and 24 up to Jesus and see those connections. But already in Exodus, these connections are being made. It's not something foreign or something different. The law is given in Exodus 21 and 22 and 23, the beginning, the the 42 commandments that fit into there. And in Exodus chapter 24, the covenant is confirmed. Again, the people have not had any chance to do any of these things yet, right? But they, they say, everything the Lord has said, we will do. It's the third time they've said this to God. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. It's a big deal to say that kind of thing three times. And God calls Moses and the elders up onto the mountain. And there, they are given a vision of God in his glory. They see him seated on the throne on a floor that looks like sapphire. They don't see his face. His form isn't clear. Scripture tells us that you can't see the face of God and live, not in this lifetime but God still meets them on that mountain and shows them who he is, which is the point of all of this. And God gives them that at the very beginning. At the very beginning, he says, this is where we're headed, to a time and a place when you can walk with me, hand in hand, arm in arm, just like he walked with Adam and Eve at the very beginning. And that too is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I can't remember which of the women it is who comes to the tomb, and the tomb is in a garden, and she finds the tomb empty, and she turns around, and there is a man who she thinks is a gardener. Oh, that's a powerful image. God the gardener who planted the Garden of Eden, just raised from the dead, sitting in the garden next to the tomb, and, and I think it's Mary thinks he's a gardener, and it's Jesus there to walk with her, there to walk with each of us. There's a lot that we've walked through today and a lot of ways it can apply to us. You may need to think through those different boxes and ask whether the rhythms of your life reflect the ways of God, whether or not you share God's heart and desire that he dwell with us. Is that something you want, to dwell with him? I want to come back to the purpose of the law. Is given 
because God loves his people, that they might flourish and live well, and because God loves all people, and that they might be his missional representatives on earth. And those are exactly the same places we live. God still loves us today. And the ways of Jesus are given to us because God loves us and wants us to flourish. He wants us to live well. He wants good things for us. They are also given, and these two things are always inseparable. The blessing of God, the mission of God, you can't pull them apart. They are also given that we might be his missional representatives in the world. That's our calling. That's our place. Nothing you can do can change the fact that God loves you and died to save you. It's done. At no point in your failure do you need to think, oh, I'm done. God, God can't accept me anymore. He does. He accepted you before you did anything. So certainly nothing you do afterwards can change that. From that place of being loved and being accepted and being a part of the church of God, go into the world on his mission to speak and live those same truths to all of the people around you who really do need to hear and know those things. Most of the people you run into are discouraged and maybe not hopeless, but certainly lacking hope because they're stuck earning their way because that's the only other option. And part of the good news of Jesus is that we don't have to do that anymore. And people need to hear that from you and see that in you. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your love for us and your grace and your goodness. I thank you for the law and that it challenges us and that even just the 11 verses we read this morning are, are a place to wrestle, Lord God. I thank you that in the midst of that, we do see your goodness and grace and love. And I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear you tell us that we are your beloved sons and daughters, to see your hand, your mighty hand and your outstretched arm rescuing us and saving us, and to respond in the same way that the Israelites have done, to say that all that you have said, we will do. Then strengthen us to live in that obedience and in grace when we don't. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.